Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. Listeners, I want you to know that the Litchfield Historical Society exhibition, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, is now open. Be sure to listen to our interview with historians Alex Dubois and Linda Hawking in episode 159, Stories from Connecticut's Western Reserve in Ohio, and make a day trip to see the exhibit. It's almost summertime, and kids everywhere are already dreaming about their summer vacation. In 1964, Jimmy O'Sullivan of Cheshire, Connecticut, had his heart set on a family outing from Connecticut to see the World's Fair in New York City's Flushing Meadows Park with its futuristic space-themed exhibits and peace through understanding theme. A short drive down the Merritt Parkway and over to Flushing Meadow, Queens put the O'Sullivan family squarely in the heart of the fair. O'Sullivan still has a photo of himself at nine years old in front of the fair's Unisphere, a 12-story high stainless steel globe. The 1964-65 New York World's Fair attracted approximately 50 million visitors, including many from Connecticut during its two April through October seasons. My guest for today's episode is Dr. Jason Scappatici, historian and associate dean of student affairs at Capital Community College in Hartford. Not only does Dr. Scappatici have a keen interest in all things World's Fair, but he's an avid collector of souvenirs and mementos from the fair. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. New York City had a World's Fair in 1939 to 40 that attracted 40 million visitors. What did a city like New York expect to get from hosting a World's Fair? And why did New York decide to host a second one in 1964? Well, uh, it was actually their third, Mary. They also had one from 1853 to 1854 called the the Fair of the Industries of All Nations. Uh, So that's the only one that was in Manhattan. The other two were in Queens, including the one we're talking about today. But the first one uh, took place in, we would call it Midtown today, if you know where the New York Public Library is? Sure. Okay. So New York Public Library at the time was a reservoir. That was the Croton Distributing Reservoir. And behind it, where Bryant Park is today, is where they built a version of the Crystal Palace. So the first World's Fair that we consider a World's Fair is 1851 London. So that's kind of like what World's Fair historians, this is the first official one. And they built this huge thing called the Crystal Palace as uh, the hall. Basically a huge, luxurious greenhouse. But at this time, was, that was modern architecture. And so New York said, okay, we're a happening city, and we're going to do that too. And so they did that from 1853 to 1854, attracted about 1.1 million people for their first one. That, by the way, uh, for those of us who are from Connecticut, where, of course, Otis Elevators is based, that is where Otis exhibited his safety break on the elevator. He got in front of a, a crowd, right, in an open elevator. He went up a couple stories cut the cable, and he did not go crashing to his death. So uh, so that's the first one. And then, of course, 3940, they exhibit in what we know today as Flushing Meadows Park, uh, or Corona Park in Queens, New York. So I know this one wasn't sanctioned by the official uh, Board of International Exhibitions, for example, but why did New York go forward, and how did Connecticut get involved? Yeah, so this one is not officially endorsed by the BIE. So just like the Olympics has an International Olympics Committee, 
World Fairs has the Bureau of International Expositions. And so New York decided to go forward for a number of reasons. Uh, one, they had already done so much work on it already. Um, so they had, uh, it was actually a group of friends that comes up with this idea in the late 50s. And they had all attended the one in 39 and 40. They all grew up in New York. And they thought, oh my God, we, we want to host another one so our kids can see what this is like. And that's actually kind of where this idea starts. And so they, they've done a lot of work. So they've already got the endorsement of the government of the city. They've got New York State. And, and the president of the United States at the time when they were starting, Eisenhower, endorsed it. And then they go to the BIE in Paris and they say, okay, we want to host this fair. We're going to do it 64, 65. And the BIE says, oh, no, sorry. Our rules say country can only host one major world's fair within 10 years. And we've already given that honor to Seattle. 1962, they're hosting the Century 21 Exposition. And New York's like, well, can't you make an exception? We are New York City. And they, they're like, no, that's not going to happen. Also, you want to keep it open two years per our rules. Again, there's rules that govern these things that are agreed on by all the participating nations. You can only be open for one six-month season. And New York said, no, 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 we need two seasons to turn a profit. And that's what we're planning on. And so the Bureau said, well, we're not going to endorse. And New York said, well, we've already laid the groundwork. <laughs> we're making it happen. And so New York went ahead and made it happen. And then how did Connecticut figure into this? Yeah, so it's part of the tradition of World's Fairs when they're hosted in the United States that the states usually each have their own exhibit. So certainly when World's Fairs are in other countries, the United States has a, a United States pavilion. But in the United States, many states tend to build their own pavilions. And Connecticut has done that uh, for many fairs, you know, the 1904 one in, in St. Louis, the 1893 in Chicago. Um, but here... The New England states decide that they're all going to band together, and they create the New England states pavilions. So all of the New England states banded together, and uh, Connecticut's share of the cost was 17%. So they all kind of divided up what it would, and it was about, I think the construction was about like 2.5 million, and of which Connecticut's share was, was 17%. And I think uh, our governor, Governor Dempsey, was mm -hmm. the chair of that that group of six New England states. Yes. So he probably could play into, we we could have this, it's close to Connecticut. That is correct, yeah. And so, yeah, so he's, there's a number of articles if you search, if you if po folks are interested, go to the Hartford Current Historic Data uh, Database and you can find all sorts of really cool articles about this time. there Because it was hot news, right? What What is Connecticut going to do at the fair? What's going to be there kind of thing? Exactly. And there were two major Connecticut corporations that really built landmark pieces in this uh, in this particular fair in this as far as their pavilions go. So they had a huge presence, and one of those was Travelers Insurance Company, and the other was General Electric. Mm. Could you tell me a little bit about the Travelers Pavilion? That's a real eye catcher. Yeah. So I love the Travelers Pavilion. So first of all, I grew up with um, a souvenir in my grandparents' house, which was a record from the Traveler's Pavilion that played the, the tour of the Traveler's Pavilion. They had this exhibit called The Triumph of Man. And The Triumph of Man took visitors through all these vignettes of kind of the pro progress, progress of, of humankind, right? From like caveman days to, you know, they have like discovery of fire, you know, and all of that, right? So um, man masters tools and stuff like that. And um, this had like a booklet 
and you could play the record and it would it would you'd flip your booklet for each different vignette and it'd tell you what was happening in the vignette. And so I grew up with this and as a child the reason I loved this record it was bright red like the Traveler's Umbrella. The whole record was bright red which was so rad. Anyway, was that a 45? It was a 45. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. it was a 45. Yep. And um, so Travelers built this really cool pavilion right on the industry, uh, the Lagoon of Industry, which was very prominent. So this is where you, you, you know, these sites were uh, more expensive. And Travelers built this huge one that was uh, the Travelers Umbrella. Uh, that's what it was supposed to look like. Now, if you see pictures of it, people did disparage it and they thought it looked like a giant red clam. Um, which I guess you could sort of see, but it actually is like a, it's supposed to be the giant traveler's umbrella. Um, yeah, because it's red and then it swoops down like yep. the top of mm-hmm. the umbrella. And then it has like the scallops of like an umbrella around the edges. And yeah. I have to say, it does have a clam-like it, it, yeah. look to it. <laughs> it does. Um, and I actually met, m- many years ago, I met one of the guys who was sent by travelers to like run the pavilion. Um, because, you know, they, they sent, of course, this was their their thing that they're doing. So they sent people, he was a junior executive and he talks about what it was like to be a junior executive and how exciting this was for him and his wife to be able to go to New York City and live there for three months over the summer of 1964. And his job was to keep the pavilion running. That was what he did. I was looking at the dedication booklet that they have online for this Traveler's Pavilion and it, it, it's kind of interesting because Travelers was 100 years old that April Correct. when they opened this pavilion. And so I think they took that very their anniversary very seriously, which they should because they've certainly become a huge, in, a huge corporation. But even in the, um, the booklet where the president is, of the company is describing why they have this pavilion and what they're hoping to accomplish... He almost seems a little defensive about the fact that it's for the insurance industry. <laughs> a lot of the pavilions are for, that we'll talk about in a little bit, are, are for things that are like communications and transportation and fancy new Mustang cars and computers and mm-hmm. things that are really very futuristic and have that kind of appeal. Uh, and it, so he's saying, you know, you have to remember that we're really important because we really help make civilization work. So we're gonna um, we're gonna play a little clip from the record that Jason's talking about right now. Welcome to the Travelers Insurance Company's exhibit. You are about to start on an unforgettable journey, a journey across two and a half billion years of life on Earth. You are going to walk through the history of man. You will be with him as he meets his greatest challenges. For this is your story, The Triumph of Man. And how did the uh, Traveler's Pavilion do? Was that a popular one? It it was pretty popular, yeah. Um, I know that, uh, you know, Dad, my father, went with his Boy Scout troops, troop, and they made sure, of course, they had to go to Traveler's because they were from Connecticut. And, by the way, Traveler's... During the fair and leading up to the fair, travelers sold World's Fair tickets at their location downtown Hartford. You could go and oh. buy tickets by going into the Travelers Building uh, right there uh, across mm-hmm. from um, sta- Old State House Square. Mm-hmm. There's so much. There's so many connections. I think Connecticut was allowed something like thirty entertainment acts that w- could be slotted to perform in the New England's pavil- mm-hmm. state's pavilion. 
and there were special trains and there were special buses and certainly companies sponsored outings uh, to go to the fair. They also had, um, they had like Connecticut College Day. So like Trinity, Conn College, UConn, you know, those students would be encouraged on that day. That's when they would get their buses and take students down to the fair on those days. Connecticut also organized, let's see, like, oh, like a scallop bake was one of the events that Connecticut organized at the New England pavilions was the scallop bake, which... Yeah, I think think blueberry buckle was one of the things they were (laughs) going to serve at the New England pavilion. I thought, okay, not too glamorous, but pretty good. So the other really big, impressive, fancy pavilion for Connecticut was the uh, General Electric Pavilion. Mm. What was that like? That, that, yes, very impressive pavilion. And General Electric, like a number of the exhibitors, uh, chose to get somebody to help them design their pavilion. And they chose none other than Walt Disney Company. And the Walt Disney Company created for them a wonderful ride that we know today is the Carousel of Progress. And so the Carousel of Progress has its beginnings here at this fair. And that's what it was called at the time, the Carousel of Progress. And uh, for those of you who've never been on the Carousel of Progress, it is a moving auditorium that is going to move you uh, through vignettes of a family. And you're going to start in, I think they started this one in like 1894. And then they go to like 1910, and then like 1924, and then finally you end in 1964. And along the way, of course, this family's life is made better by GE products. Uh, So people criticized it, said it was just a giant commercial, but it's also really fun. It has this great catchy song called There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, written by, um, you know, the Disney Corporation. And it's featuring these really cool animatronics, right? Which at the time would have been kind of mind-boggling to people. Oh, yeah. Those were still popular when I took my kids to Mm. Disney World, let Mm. alone in in 1964. My husband, who was the nine-year-old that went to the fair in 1964, they went on anything that was a ride. So if it all these pavilions that actually put you in a car Mm -hmm. and then drove you through any kind of exhibit... Those were the ones that kids wanted to be on and they wanted to see. So that General Electric one really pitched the new wave of electric appliances. And so I know things like dishwashers and electric ranges, those kinds of things. What other kinds of things do you think were featured? So, uh, you know, the the new push-button telephones, things of that nature, and uh, also things like as simple as the toaster. Or an electric vacuum cleaner. Those were would have all been products that they would have featured in the Carousel of Progress. And the Carousel of Progress, you know, has it's it has funny parts, which it's supposed to write. It's supposed to keep you engaged. It also has the family dog in it, which, by the way, Caroline Kennedy really loved when she went through the, car- the Carousel of Progress. Um, and she apparently supposedly wanted to take it home, <laughs> the the dog from the the little family vignettes. I always buy souvenirs. And I buy them for myself, but I also buy them. I bring them back to people who didn't even go on the trip with me, but I still bring them souvenirs. I have a little shelf in my office that's full of souvenirs that other people have brought me. They tend to know I like things that are little miniature buildings, so I get a lot of those. But what do you think uh, drives people to want to purchase souvenirs? I think it's just a, a way to say, I was here. I saw this. 
you know, one of the things that I have a lot of from this World's Fair are souvenir buttons from each pavilion had different ones, uh, you know, that they would give you. And so you could wear it and say, you know, I saw the future at General Motors uh, or I went on the Magic Skyway at the Ford Pavilion. And so there's lots of those little buttons that just remind you your experience, but also tell other people, yeah, I was there, I did that. And certainly this World's Fair, there's lots of souvenirs <laughs> that were created. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibit, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve, opens April 21st, 2023. Learn about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibit supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. And was it because you saw them at your grandparents' house, the record, the traveler's record? Is that what really inspired you to become a collector of fair memorabilia? You know, th that certainly has something to do with it because I had a couple of souvenirs from my grandma and grandpa's house. So yeah, that's, that's probably how it started. And then when I started to, when I created the, the lecture that I do and take it around to libraries, people would just bring me things and they would be like, hey, I'm cleaning out my attic. My kids don't want this because they didn't go to the fair, but do you want it? You obviously are interested. And I was, I'm like, of course I'll take it. So I have so many more things from the fair than I ever thought I would. My partner's a little, you know, like, okay, maybe we don't need this many things, but I'm never going to turn stuff down. What uh, are your favorites? I know you brought some we're going to take pictures of that we'll put in our social in our social media. But tell us a little bit about your your absolute favorite items that are in your collection. Sure. Uh, so one of my absolute favorites is a miniature of the Pieta. So the Pieta, uh, for, for your listeners who, who don't know, is Michelangelo's famous uh, sculpture. And it's... Uh, the Blessed Virgin, and she's holding a deceased Jesus, right? Pieta means pity. And it's a really moving piece of sculpture. It has only left the Vatican once in its entire history, which is over 500 years, and that was for this World's Fair. Uh, so it's a monumental kind of thing that happened. But also, that was the second most popular exhibit of the fair. Now, is it true that it was brought over on a submarine? Or was it packaged and shipped? How do you take a priceless <laughs> sculpture out of the Vatican and send it to a New York World's Fair? So they, yet they were very concerned about this uh, because not even a decade before, right, the Italian line had lost the Andrea Doria, right, off the coast of Nantucket. And so they're very worried about this. So it comes over on the Christopher Colombo and it doesn't ride in the hull. It rides on deck because they don't want it in the hull should this ship sink. It also is specially fit in this um, special crate that has water-activated flotation devices. So should something go terribly wrong, the Pieta will in theory float 
and it has a water-activated, like, radio ping so that you can find the Pieta should anything go wrong. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, this is just yeah. like finding the space capsule when the guys came back <laughs> right. from the moon. Yes. And they would pluck them out of the ocean. Same idea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I can't. I cannot imagine the Pieta ever leaving the Vatican again. So that was probably a big effort. But I know I was at one of your lectures and somebody brought you a plastic Pieta Mm -hmm. to give you. I have a couple of them now, uh, Mary. I have a couple of them. What are some of the other fun ones? So one of the other ones that I really love are these little appetizer picks. And so they're made of plastic. And at the top, they have a replica of the Unisphere, which is the centerpiece of the fair, uh, that big kind of globe. And they're just, I don't, they just scream 1960s to me. And I can just see people, you know, at some cocktail party in their neighborhood holding their gin martinis or their vodka gimlets and using these little cocktail picks. And I love them uh, because they're just so kitschy. And I know U.S. Steel had a really fancy paperweight that when we had it in an exhibit, I that's the one I would have tried to walk off with, I think, because it's so interesting. But tell us about that one. Yeah, so U.S. Steel is, is by the way, the company that donated the the, the Unisphere. So that was oh, all funded. Oh, so that's that connection. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so in fact, if you go visit the park today, the Unisphere, of course, is still there. And it still says a gift of U.S. Steel on the plaque, provided they haven't taken it down. But yeah, so that's why that paperweight was a reduction of what they created for the fair, which was the Unisphere. It's really heavy. It is. It's it's like solid metal. It's not a hollow, any kind of like a hollow Easter bunny. It's a solid piece of metal uh, and it's heavy. And I hope whoever bought it picked it up at the end of the day and not at the beginning of the day because I would not want to walk around the fair all day holding that thing. And as you said, there were buttons, there were special special patches that Boy Scouts were given for attending. There were all kinds of, were there snow globes? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have a, a couple of those. There's many, many reductions of the Unisphere. Like the Unisphere is all over everything. Uh, so there's many of those things. But even uh, other things like Shea Stadium was new. So that's just open. So sometimes that figures in some of the souvenirs that I found. Uh, there's glasses. There's a whole glass set, like drinking glasses, of some of the, the kind of best-known pavilions of the fair. And so I think it's a set of eight. Uh, so if you find ever find a set of eight of them, and it's a reasonable price, snatch them up. It's interesting because it figures in some television episodes and some movies. So I know that uh, there's a... I've read that there's a Flintstone episode where they go to the fair and then there was a comic book, a a pulp wood, you know, paper comic book that was done uh, Mm -hmm. of the Flintstones going to the fair. And then the Unisphere really figures in, is it Men in Black? That's the iconic uh, image for that movie because the story of the movie is that the fair is really the cover up for aliens arriving right. on the United, at the United, you know at the United States or in the in the uh, on the earth so it really features in that movie and you see that big unisphere yep and the landmark. towers from the New York State Pavilion mm-hmm. are the saucers 
that oh, those yeah. were the spacecraft oh, that they had there used. We go. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that's why those towers, those kind of funky uh, mid-century towers that were built for the New York State Pavilion, that's why those are there, at least per Men in Black. Those that's that's uh, used for space travel. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's funny because that New York State Pavilion was designed by a Connecticut resident, Philip Johnson, and we'll be talking about his glass house in an upcoming episode, which is an, a great place to go this summer. So this uh, master of modernism actually designed the New York State Pavilion, and it's still partly there, right? Have they demolished that, or is that still there? It is there. You're right. It was one of the most expensive pavilions built. It cost $17 because it was designed to be permanent. Uh, So, you know, many fair buildings are designed to be temporary, but this one was designed to last. And you're right. So Philip Johnson, uh, one of America's leading architects at the time, uh, he designs it, and it and it is really cool. It uh, originally featured this very big fiberglass roof that stretched over a large portion of it, which was the largest fiberglass roof created at, to that time. Uh, that was called the Tent of Tomorrow, and then it had these those towers that I described. So you could take an elevator to the top of one of them, and that was the tallest structure in the fair. You get a panoramic view of the fair, and it had like a little theater, a, a theater in the round. That had a, it was a history of the of New York, uh, New York Harbor specifically, and you know like what 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 that did you know for America, and then it had this huge terrazzo map underneath the the tent of tomorrow underneath that fiberglass roof that was a gift of Texaco, so it showed you where every single Texaco station was in New York. <laughs> so it was a huge map. It was the biggest map in the world at the time of the state of New York, and it showed you where every Texaco station was. Earlier, you mentioned that the New York committee said, we've got to run this fair for two years uh, in order to be able to break even. How did the fair do financially? Very badly. Very, very poorly, unfortunately. Uh, so you'd think with 50 million visitors, okay, that's pretty decent, but they were expecting... 70 to 100 million visitors and so for every I'd have to look at at the official numbers but it's something like for every dollar invested I think it was 19 cents was returned or something like that. boy that's really that's not a good return on investment (laughs) that's really bad if you go there to Flushing Meadow Park now what can you see that's still there from the fair so the Unisphere absolutely And then right next to the Unisphere is going to be the Queen's Museum. And that was originally built for the 39 World's Fair and was then used again, of course, for the 64-65 World's Fair. And that was the New York City Pavilion. Um, And so if you go into the Queen's Museum, you'll be able to to be in a building that actually was at two World's Fairs. So that's pretty cool. It has this incredible model of New York that is well worth the trip, just that alone. And it has two little exhibits on both of the World's Fairs, so that's worth it. The New York State Pavilion, like I already said, there is some efforts right now to restore that and to make it an outdoor theater because part of the pavilion is, like I said, uh, kind of exposed. And so they want to turn it into some sort of outdoor theater right there in the park. The Transit Authority Building, that one is still there. That is a very popular place for like proms and weddings. Seems like every time I'm there, I see a wedding party getting their picture taken somewhere outside of that building. Uh, so that's there. And then uh, the other thing that as visitors are wandering around, we'll see the country of Jordan brought as a gift to the city, a column, a Roman column from some of the ruins, Roman ruins in Jordan. And that is still in the park today. 
as a gift from the people of Jordan to the people of New York. Well, I think this is definitely going to be a trip that my husband, who was nine the last time he was there, uh, will go see what's in the park that remains from the fair. But I know that there's a place in Connecticut you can visit where there's been something from the fair incorporated. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, that one is really cool. So that is down in Groton, and that is a church, St. Mary, which has a large portion of the Vatican Pavilion, and it was moved there, and uh, it was created into a church, which is quite appropriate. Uh, so they reappropriated a part of like the chapel of the Vatican Pavilion and turned it into this uh, church. And so you can still go there uh, to this day, and you can see a little bit of what a pavilion might have looked like. And they preserved a, a fair amount of it, so like the stained glass, uh, the paneling, things of that nature. It's really ingenious. I'll have a link that uh, in the show notes that listeners can go to and see what the inside of the church looks like. But the architect is uh, not a not a tremendously well-known mid-century modern architect, but he did a phenomenal job. And it, I have to go this summer and visit it in person. But when, what you can see online with the way he repurposed the steeple, the uh, walnut reredos, and the stained glass... It's really a clever design, and, and it's funny to think that it was recycled from the fair. Mm-hmm. Now, you just said that New York really lost money on this World's Fair, yeah. and I'm wondering what's happening with World's Fairs now? Yeah, so World's Fairs still happen. Many Americans don't even think about them because America hasn't hosted a World's Fair since 1984, and that's the last one the U.S. hosted. We hosted it in New Orleans. It did not go well. Um, You may remember that at that same time, America was also hosting the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. And so the thought is that more people opted instead to go to the Olympics than to go to this fair. So they have these kind of two competing events. And so America, while we are represented, America still builds pavilions at the fairs. They're just not as popular for Americans to go on vacations. But the next one will be in Osaka. For those of you who are interested, in 2025, you can go check out Osaka. Well, I'll think about that. (laughs) I'll have to get to Flushing Meadows first. Jason, thank you so much. I'm glad you shared all your fabulous information with us. We'll have some photos of some of the souvenirs that he's brought today. And uh, once again, thank you for being our guest. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top of the homepage, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link. Your donation is vital to our ability to bring you well-researched episodes that bring out new facets of Connecticut history. Donations can be made on a one-time basis or on a continuing basis. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at High Wattage Media. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.